ATYT, I'm Nomi Konst. Uh, we have a special interview today. For those of you who want to know how to be a master activist, master organizer, we have the manual for you. It's called Hegemony How-To. It is a book that is a roadmap for radicals because we know so many of you are radicals. And of course, we have the author, Jonathan Matthew Smucker, who um, is a friend of TYT and the movements. He's also the director of Beyond the Choir. And uh, he's an organizer in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For those of you who have been paying attention, there is uh, quite a bit of activism coming out of, of rural-ish PA. I think that's like probably appropriate. But Jonathan, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Nomiki. Really happy to be talking with you. You've been doing this for quite a long time, several decades. Uh, what's so unique about this moment in organizing? Um, it's it's an incredible moment, and and not two decades. <laughs> I'm not that old. Two uh, decades. That's several. <laughs> okay, I can say several, and I'm <laughs> so. Uh, I age you, okay? <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I I just don't want to sound too old, but um, but I have been doing grassroots organizing work for for over two decades, and I haven't seen a moment like this uh, in a place like Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, Lancaster's a small-sized city, about 55,000 people in a big surrounding county and rural area. Um, and after the election in 2016, it, it literally took three weeks before when I entered, when I exited my, my door, when I didn't run into somebody in the street asking me some variation of, tell me what I can do. How can I get involved? What can I do? And these weren't people who have been doing lots of things. Uh, most of them are people who haven't been involved before. So the, the groundswell of energy of people who want to get involved, who want to do something to turn it around, the kind of wake-up call that uh, Trump's election posed is, uh, you know, has created a moment unlike anything I've seen in my lifetime. Um, and here in Lancaster, we've really worked to capture that moment um, as, uh, as effectively as possible, and we've been building it since. Um, I think it, in, in a lot of ways, it's a moment that a lot of the infrastructure of the left um, hasn't been ready to fully capture, uh, to, to seize, um, partly because we've become so weakened over the past uh, few decades. And that's a lot of what my book digs into is, is, is how the left has become fractured and weakened. And, yeah. You know, what I find fascinating about your book is, is it does kind of uh, signal the mistakes many activists make when they're first starting at organizing. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you've seen it over the past year. I've definitely seen it over the past year. And I think much of many of our audience members may have learned from some of these mistakes. Um, but one stuck out from, <laughs> to me in particular, which is a tough one, and it's kind of uncomfortable to talk about, but, but wait, let's be real, the paralyzing purism. Can you talk about mm. that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, <clears throat> So I think that there's a tendency, uh, I, I quote Bob Wing, uh, a friend of mine in, uh, in, uh, in the book, where uh, he says something along the lines of, if, if, you, if you can't win, the next best thing is to be righteous. Um, and so in Beyond the Choir, in our trainings, we talk about the, the story of the righteous few. Um, and it's a story that kind of ends alone on a cross. <laughs> uh, it's a story where... Um, you know, it's us against the world. And, uh, you know, the, the backward sheeple um, are drinking the Kool-Aid and, um, and we're always going to, to be up against the culture. Um, now, there's, 
a lot of good reason why people come to feel this way, right? Um, people are in situations where there, there is a dominant culture and it defines um, a lot of the issues that we care about and it defines them in unfavorable ways. Um, and uh, But it's really easy to project the dominant culture um, onto everyone. It's mm-hmm. really easy to uh, interp- to make what's dominant seem more popular than it really is. Um, and uh, so th- there's a there's a change in mentality that's needed where we start to look for the kind of uh, seeds of uh, resistance to the dominant culture in everyday behaviors of people and have an eye out for finding common ground. Now, one of the problems that I dig into in the book is that in activist circles, there often becomes what we call a clubhouse mentality where people actually have social incentives to be the kind of, you know, righteous view, to be the black sheep, to be the the lone radical standing against a bunch of liberal reformists or whatever it is. And we actually start to exaggerate when we were the odd one out, stories of like how our families rejected us um, in order to kind of signal belonging in this radical subculture. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, standing up uh, standing up alone can be a very empowering experience for people. It can be an important piece of people's development. Um, but when you get attached to that, what happens is we start to suspect being successful itself. Somebody has success on an electoral campaign or an issue campaign, and we say, well, it's because they sold out. Right. Um, and you see this mentality of where the left kind of uh, anybody who starts to succeed, it's like, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, um, isn't that the point? The whole point is you're supposed to have success. Not to... Exactly. If our point is to win, that is the yeah. point, right? Is it but a form sometimes... of Stockholm syndrome? That's a good question. Um, I think some of it's just, you know, you become used to being the most radical kid on the block. Um, and when all of a sudden there's like, hundreds of thousands of people who are into what you were into. It's like, well, I was into it first. Mm. It's kind of like, you know, I like Green Day before they were cool. Um, but, it, <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's uh, I think that's, that's, that's part of it. But we really have to uh, shed that. It, it can be incredibly destructive. What we, you know, if we're serious about social change, we need to, like, actually be taking the ideas uh, that we have and making them go viral. Like, having people who don't agree with us on everything take up, certain ones of our ideas and and instead of you know you, i think some of what you're referring to you'll see on twitter someone will come out uh for an issue and will say well where were you a year ago well, like why is, it is the point <laughs> yeah. To, yeah right i mean it's like isn't the point to have more people changing their behavior yeah. um in order to um have more people speaking out on the issues that we care about so that we can win yeah, we. I mean, right before we got on 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 air, we we were having a conversation about a certain senator who has shifted their policies uh, quite a bit, and and people are skeptical of that. But the point is, you want those senators voting for progressive policies, which 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 leads me to, in the face of Trump, uh, so many, I would say, liberals like they're they're out there saying the biggest threat is Trump. We should be focusing on Trump. Um, but you you know, you're talking about movements, and I mean, is there a way that we can balance both that that we can push back against Trump and push our senators and congressmen and, you know, all the way down to be more progressive on other issues? Absolutely. I think the key is to speak in a language that everyday working people can hear, right? I think one of the biggest problems with the, um, the symptoms that you kind of, uh, name the story of the righteous few, um, there's a, 
profound insularity um, within the left today that's emerged over the past 50 years, where um, most of the leadership in our institutions, from labor unions to community organizations to, if you consider the Democratic Party part of the broad left infrastructure, the leadership are some are in the top 20% by and large. There's exceptions, but it's a culture of the top 20% of the economic spectrum. And we've become, be, we've become cut off from working people. So I'm from a, uh, a rural working class background, and I've had to like kind of bridge this and then notice this. Um, but when we are our own reference points, when activism becomes this space where self-selecting people who think alike kind of occupy this clubhouse, mm -hmm. right? What happens is we become more concerned about whether our woke friends are going to like our status on Facebook or retweet our stuff. If you're organizing everyday working people, if you're onboarding people who haven't been involved in politics into a political process, into a political vehicle, that becomes the only thing that matters. That becomes your grounding reference point, and that becomes how you gear your vocabulary. If you don't have that interaction, um, you're not going to be able to do all those things. But back to your, your, your main question, can we do it all at once? Yes, we have to. Um, and, you know, we've done that in Lancaster since the election. You know, we called for an emergency community meeting. We got 300 people to the first one, 400 to the next, 500 to the next. We've been mobilizing unprecedented numbers here over the past year. But from day one, you know, we said Trump is a dumpster fire. We have to unite to stop him. More than that, we have to stop this threat of uh, emergent right-wing populism that is so dangerous. We have to stop that. However, unity doesn't mean glossing over real differences, and it doesn't mean um, unity. Uh, you know, the, the problem with unity is those calling for it usually mean unity under their leadership, right. under their premises, right? And that's the problem we have with the current Democratic Party. So we said on day one, we've got to stop Trump, but we have to take a hard look at how we got here. And part of how we got here is that everyday people haven't been involved. We have to get back involved. And part of how we got here is the Democratic Party. You know, there's important exceptions, but by and large has not been fighting visibly for working people, has not been picking the fights it needs to pick with Wall Street, with the 1%, with big moneyed interest, because it's ambivalent, because it has to raise money to win elections. And we have to pick those fights. And in fact, picking those fights and pushing Democrats to fight visibly for working people and recruiting candidates who will is what's going to make the broad left and the Democratic Party stronger against Trump and against the GOP agenda. So it's not either or. It's not like we pick a fight within the Democratic Party or we pick a fight with Trump and the Republicans. It's actually the kind of insurgency that has to happen right now in relationship to the failed leadership of the Democratic Party is what's going to make us stronger against, against Trump. Trump. Right. Um, you know, but but it, there is there are opportunities to build coalitions, and um, you know somebody who might be your enemy on one issue, That's uh, enemy, right. your opponent, or on the other side of one issue, uh, might be aligned with you on another issue. And I sense you know sometimes in in the activism community, a lot of activists will push back on someone saying, "How could you align with that person? They're against." X, Y, Z, but they're for this. I'm going to use uh, Cory Booker, for example, you know, yep. um, mm -hmm. or, or maybe somebody else who, who was against, is against Medicare for all, but is for uh, legalizing marijuana. But you, these coalitions are important. Um, you know, where are our purity tests? Is it, could you align with a Democrat that is not pro-choice? Could you align with a Democrat who's um, for legal, you know, has, has, has 
owns a gun and is a is a hunter. Um, where do you <laughs> Sorry, build these I live coalitions? in Lancaster County. I grew up yeah. using guns, so I'm like, yes, of course. Yes. If you're not willing to to align with people who own guns in Lancaster County, we're never going to build any political power at all. And, and um, I see that, you know, I'm, and I, I do want to yeah. reinforce that. It's interesting you say because I travel around the country a lot, and I just got back from Wisconsin, and I was I was in Puerto Rico, and everybody I spoke to that was a Democrat, I'm not kidding you, every single person I asked that was not in New York City or LA owns a gun. Yeah, well, and this is part of the the problem of the insularity of the left that I've been talking about. And it it follows class lines, educational lines, and urban rural, right? Mm -hmm. And so you've got a state like Pennsylvania that's really kind of a microcosm of the country where on the east side, you've got Philadelphia, the west side, you've got Pittsburgh. And then in between, you have what James Carville condescendingly calls uh, Pennsylvania. Like the United States, you've got the the East Coast, the West Coast, and what people condescendingly call flyover country, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And these are areas that used to be organized, not entirely, but like in Pennsylvania, coal country, right? You had strong labor organizing, right? You had um, real people's movements. Um, And as labor over the past few decades has been in decline and under attack, nothing has replaced organizing some of these areas at a scale across the country. There are important projects. There's like Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. Um, There's projects like Lancaster Stands Up. There's important exceptions. But at scale, we've effectively abandoned so many areas of the country. And so like on an issue like guns, for example, you have people in cities with college educations who don't understand what it's like to live in the country and how there's a different vocabulary. Like there's, there's an unfamiliarity that lends itself towards stereotypes on both sides. And that has made a lot of areas susceptible to really screwed up appeals that foment prejudice intentionally and foment xenophobia. But we shouldn't take the way that people have been organized on these issues as inevitable. Or, um, and I think that there's some introspection needed on, on the left of how we have not been engaging these areas and how we might. It's interesting. I, I you know, as, a, as an experiment, do you think that maybe there needs to be some sort of a, a weekend retreat <laughs> with, with activists from all over the country get together so they feel, you know, the, the, the Angelinos and the New Yorkers and the Philadelphians and the Chicagoans can be more familiar with, you know, the, the rural language and vice versa so that they're able to communicate with each other, not so much to organize in those communities, but to work within the Democratic Party because you do kind of have to come up with these collaborative uh, arrangements. That's right. And I, I actually, I'm like a broken record on canvassing. Like everybody should be out canvassing a lot. Um, everybody. Like there's mm-hmm. not a leadership position where people should not do some canvassing. And then the quality of the canvassing is important. It's mm-hmm. got to be a listening canvas, not right. just a, a, a preachy prescriptive canvas. But when you're going door to door in working class neighborhoods um, and low income neighborhoods, And when you start asking people about things, it's just such a check on the vocabulary that we develop in in our in our lefty circles. Right. Mm -hmm. Because you're going to lose people unless you're talking in a language that they can hear and you're inviting them to talk and you're figuring out how to connect. Um, So I do think that that's a great idea. Um, you know, it's interesting. There's a, a version of that that we have in history. It's called the the, the Mississippi uh, Freedom Summer, where college-educated students from the north, black and white, and yep. uh, and of all races, went in integrated buses and went canvassing. And I think one of the things that we miss in that story is that people weren't good at it at first. People with that kind of educational background and class background, like largely middle class 
people didn't know how to talk to people at first and mm-hmm. they had to fail and get better at failing. And that's some of what we have to do right now to break out. And, and canvassing is a really good way. I love the idea of more. In fact, next weekend, there's a group of New Yorkers uh, coming down to canvass with us in Lancaster County. So you're, you're, uh, you're setting me up there to, 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 <laughs> to make that plug. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, before we wrap up, top three tips for an organizer. Yeah, well, that's hard, but... Uh, uh, I mean, you wrote a book on it, come on. I did. <laughs> I think the most profound thing is that, uh, let's define organizing, right? Organizing is not organizing an event. Uh, it's not, I think people use the term loosely. Organizing is about organizing people into a cohesive force to make change, right? So it's not about like, event organizing is part mm-hmm. of organizing, right? But it's about taking people that don't have a, a, a political voice because they're fragmented mm-hmm. or they're inactive and it's bringing them together. Um, and so grounding yourself in the base that you're trying to organize with, right? That's the most important thing, right? It's not about, organizing is not about doing all the things yourself. It's not about, plan- it's about like uh, bringing people into the process. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one point. Uh, <laughs> I, I, um, yeah, I, I guess the, la- the, the second, I'm just going to make two points. I think the second one goes on, builds on the rest of the conversation that we had here. And that is, you know, politics isn't about, um, purity. It's not about being woke as an individual, right? That's like being about being woke as an individual. You want to do that? That's great. More power to you. But politics is profoundly about power, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I'm not saying abandon values to have power, right? But yeah, yeah, like so many people in the United States, I think, because we've been so disenfranchised from having the Democratic Party has not been our vehicle, right, um, for for decades, and it's felt like an impenetrable monolith. And so many people in the United States learn how to have politics, right? Mm. Have a political analysis, right? We need to learn how to do politics, how to build power and be able to navigate political terrain from a place of power that's interested in, you know, reshaping the direction of uh, things like the Democratic Party, things like the government. Leveraging Um, these movements, leveraging these communities that are, yeah. Exactly. And so we need to learn how to do politics, not just have politics as individuals. Great. Great advice. Uh, I highly recommend Checking out Jonathan Smucker's book. It's right here if you can see it. We'll have a link down below here. Um, hope to have you on again soon. Hopefully, you know, next time you're in New York or if we're in Pennsylvania, we can sit down and have a longer chat. But, you know, you're doing great work in Lancaster and, and obviously for the movement, the more broad movement uh, in general. So thank you. Thank you. You're doing great work too. And I would love to talk anytime. <laughs>